I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. GM, I'm Dan Roberts. And I'm Jeff Roberts. And this is GM GM from from Decrypt. GM, GM, Jeff. GM, Dan. So here we go. We've got Christine Brown on the program today. Now, this is an interesting one. I'm pretty excited. We know her very well from being crypto COO over at Robinhood Crypto for a while. She was on the conference circuit. I think we've both interviewed her at multiple events. Then she left Robinhood. She didn't make clear what it was for. And of course, now we know because yesterday uh, she announced it's an NFT play, an NFT company called Floor. Yeah, I think this is going to be one to watch. I mean, there's you know more NFT ventures that you can shake a stick at, and the market's going down. But Christine, I've, I've admired for years. She's you know former Googler, really good at finance and tech, and has brought in the right people. So you know, I think there's an opportunity here for you know you know these startups are hard, but this one could break out. What do you make of someone like her leaving her perch at Robinhood, which of course has had its issues, sure, but it's a publicly traded company. It's a company that presumably is here to stay for a while, has been around a while to go all in on an NFT platform. I mean, is that safe? Is there, there's a a certain obvious level of risk here, especially ask the skeptics and they don't think NFTs are, are here to stay. That's why I love crypto, just that entrepreneurial spirit. You know, I mean, I personally, if I was making, you know, a really fat executive salary with great benefits and all that, you know, you know, perks, you know, it'd be very cushy, you know, to leave all that to, you know, go with the unknown and maybe fail. You know, so I think it's brave and I, I have huge respect for anyone who does that. That's great. And we should definitely ask her about the competition because the competition is already stiff. It's not just OpenSea. Um, you know, as I understand it, Floor is about an easy, instant way to look at and share your collection. Well, we've heard of those before. I mean, Mark Cuban backed uh, a site that has that exact purpose and, and value proposition. He's always sharing his collection. So, you know, we can get into that on, on how Floor will differentiate itself. But the uh, company has raised an $8 million Series A round. Well, let's find out. Let's bring Christine on. Awesome. Here we go. Okay, Christine Brown, GM, welcome to the show. GM, thanks for having me, guys. So we like to start with the news, and then we'll kind of pull back out and and talk big picture. But you just yesterday announced your new move. I remember when we wrote about the fact that you had left Robinhood Crypto, and now you have been able to finally reveal your new company. It's called Floor. And starting with this uh, Series A fundraise, tell us about Floor. Yeah. So I guess the best way to tell you about it is to actually ask you a question. Do you remember the first NFT that you purchased? Yes. 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 Okay. This is Jeff. I totally do. It's an ugly shark and it cost me about $8. Awesome. Yeah, that's funny that, that yours was a shark because mine was a whale. <laughs> <laughs> Very representative. Do you remember that experience of what it was like to actually go through and purchase and acquire that NFT? What was it like? 
Uh, total nightmare. I bought it on OpenSea and it was tied to the Polygon network. So I had to go and um, I think find Polygon, set that up, figure out how to, you know, buy, buy gas for, you know, my Polygon. It's a total nightmare. I think to this day, I'm still wrestling to get it off the platform and into my own wallet. Yeah, I think that actually mirrors a lot of people's experiences. Nightmare is a, a great word. Okay, one last question and then I'll like, I'll, I'll get to the meat and potatoes. A week after you you bought it, how did you understand how it was doing from a financial investment perspective, from a like you enjoying it perspective? How did you go and check on this NFT? I just would go to OpenSea here and there. And strangely, yeah. no one was bidding or asking for my off-brand Polygon Shark. So strange. Yeah, I think it quickly plummeted in price because yeah. I clearly, and I hadn't bought it as a speculative investment anyway. I mostly bought it as a reporting tool to kind of figure out how these things work. But I definitely bought at the peak of that collection. <laughs> Yeah. So Floor really started as a way to solve these problems for users because the nightmare scenario that you had and then the kind of, oh, you have to open up a tab on a marketplace really to understand how it's doing long term. The second that you start doing this for more than one asset at a time, and let's say you're investing across multiple NFTs and multiple collections, it becomes like impossible to wrangle and to actually understand what is happening. So my co-founder, Chris Mattern, he had this problem. It was a problem that he was solving for himself. You know, how do you understand the NFTs that you have? How do you make that more accessible? I'm a little bit biased, but he is one of, if not the best product minds in the space. The nice thing is that he can also actually back up a lot of his ideas with building. So he launched an app last year that does it and does it beautifully. You open up the app, you enter your wallet address, and you can see your portfolio of NFTs, their value over time, what's happening in that collection, you know, the trading activity that's going on. You can get interesting and really unique insights into the data around it. And it just makes you a smarter, more connected human with the, the tokens that you're purchasing. We're seeing users open this app multiple times a day and telling us really it's like the first thing, you know, they roll out of bed and they want to see what's going on. So that's that's really what Floor is today. It is a portfolio tracker that helps connect you and you understand your NFTs better. And we're really excited to announce an $8 million seed round led by some of the best investors in the space to kind of supercharge the mission to make NFTs more accessible and understandable. Yeah, it it's so interesting, Christine, because to go from Robinhood to an NFT-focused business, just sticking with kind of the industry for a moment, and and I remember, you know, and you always had to be cagey and, and stuff, but I've interviewed you now at a, at a couple of conferences, and it was always like, is, is Robinhood going to add support for NFTs, which I think just recently the, the company finally announced is coming explicitly. But, you know, it's really going from a, a company that encompassed stocks and crypto and a number mm. of different assets to focusing just on NFTs. So the obvious question is like, is this industry here to stay? Obviously, you have to believe that. And is it safe and permanent enough to be focusing all in on just a, an NFT site? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I think NFTs represent fundamentally a, a new model for digital ownership. And I think a lot of people see a very small part of the NFT space today and they think, oh, it represents speculative trading or financial positions, right? Cool. Great. That is where you might see some overlap with the Robinhood brand as it has been in the past. But I think NFTs will actually power an immense number of use cases of things that we already know, such as art, 
tickets, memberships to things that we don't know yet. I'm sure you've heard this kind of analogy before, but to me, NFTs are really kind of like the early internet where, you know, in the early 90s, after the kind of PC rise, the the internet was getting built. And if you would have told those initial builders, like, hey, I would use this to get a cab to take me somewhere and I wouldn't have to actually hail it. I wouldn't have to pay for it with cash. They might be a little bit surprised that that's what they were building for at the time. And I think that we'll see that with NFTs as well. We're so early and there's so much that could be built on top of this initial use case that to me, it actually in a lot of ways feels much bigger than just an investment vehicle, which is you know where Robinhood's focus was. Christine, um, I'd love to dive further into the use cases for NFTs, and we're going to explore that. Dan's written some great stuff on this. But before we go there, I'd like to, I always like to ask our guests sort of give some background on how they came to crypto. Because, you know, I think you're, you know, highly regarded as a finance person. But, Mm. you know, tell us your journey to crypto. What was the first time you encountered it or bought it? Yeah. So I've been working in tech for over a decade. So I definitely heard about Bitcoin in the early days, 2012, 2013. I was at Google at the time, friends with engineers. They were talking about it. But it felt incredibly inaccessible, especially to me, right? It was... uh, very technical. You know, it started from this white paper, an engineering white paper, essentially. The community around it was mostly software engineers. And, you know, the primary acquisition strategy was mining, right? So it's like all these things put together, someone that's just kind of stumbling across it isn't going to like feel that pull and that tug towards it. I wrote it off as, you know, this is not for me. And continued doing whatever 20-somethings do early in their career. It wasn't until I joined Robinhood in early 2017 that it came back to kind of the forefront of my focus again. I was leading a product. I was leading product on an initiative to go self-clearing and really grappled with themes around ownership and centralization in that process. So the the self-clearing product that we launched, it was for our securities business, you know, essentially answering the question, when you swipe up you know, on a trade to purchase shares of Tesla, what actually happens on the other side that allow someone to say, yes, you, Jeff, own these shares of Tesla? You know, getting to see the inner workings of the tech and infrastructure that powers the financial industry in the U.S. was illuminating. Because it's so (laughs) great and fast. (laughs) Oh, yes, exactly. No. So, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent, but, you know, stock trading used to be all paper driven, right? Actual stock certificates, couriers, like carrying paper running between locations in Wall Street. In the 1960s, there's actually a literal paperwork crisis. That's what they call it. You can Google it. And they had to shut down the stock market every Wednesday just to simply make it possible for trades to like be cleared and settled. When, you know, computing came along in the 70s and 80s, everything was digitized But really, there hasn't been a lot of innovation on top of the decisions made in the 70s and 80s. So these like old financial systems, they can't move fast. They can't change rapidly. And by the way, on top of it, it's super centralized. There is one kind of clearinghouse that oversees all of the street side activity here. So all of that kind of culminating together got me interested in kind of blockchain technology. It's the antithesis of it in many ways. You know, it's new tech, it's modern, it's totally decentralized, it's totally open. You can see everything that's happening and it's 24-7, so you don't have to close on Wednesdays. And I was really lucky to be at a company that was also making crypto accessible and approachable to a wide 
retail audience. You know, Robinhood was one of the first broker dealers to have a crypto business next to their broker dealer, launched crypto in early 2018. And it's been an on-ramp for really millions of new folks that get into the space. Uh, Christine, that's a great overview of, I think, the advantages of blockchain and crypto to conventional legacy systems. And I think that's drawn a lot of people, including me, towards crypto. But yeah, it didn't quite answer what I asked. I guess to put it in layman's terms, um, what's in your bag and when did you get it? (laughs) Yeah, so in 2018, 2017, 2018, when I started getting into blockchain, I, I bought Bitcoin. Like, I think that is an entry point for a lot of people. And I think since then, I've definitely, you know, Ethereum, the kind of ability to have smart contracts on the network was really interesting to me. So invested in ETH as well. And then last year, my kind of journey down the rabbit hole of NFTs was really sparked by a one-of-one artist, Amber Vittoria. So she was someone that I had followed for a few years. I actually collect her physical paintings. And I saw her tweeting a lot about her kind of entry point into NFTs. And I was like, I I help run a crypto business. Like maybe this is something I should be paying attention to and kind of fell down the rabbit hole that way. In terms of my bags, you'd have to open up my floor app to really see all of the NFTs that I'm holding these days. I see what you did there. Yeah. yeah, Got it. What else uh, in your collection are you proud of? Do you think is interesting? And of course, you know, the, the broader question really is it, it's, it's cool that it started with an artist whose physical work you also have since in so many cases, the most hyped, prominent attention grabbing NFTs still are the digital only PFP collections that are kind right. of a flex, you know, the board apes, the cool cats, the doodles, those kind of things. So what do you make of the different types there? And, and, what are the highlights that, that you have? Yeah, I think actually one of the things that I am I like telling people because I, I think it helps make this space more approachable is that like I don't have a board ape, I don't have a Basie, I don't have a punk, never have. I was priced out because by the time I was exploring the space, like it just didn't feel accessible to me. So things that I'm really excited about, I think it kind of can break things down into a few different areas. Utility and experience is really something that I'm passionate about in the NFT space. I mean, co-founding a company that gives you a real world utility of an app when you buy the token is maybe a dead giveaway that this is going to be something that resonates with me. But there are a lot of things happening here that are super, super interesting. Links DAO like, is buying a literal golf course. So token holders have a way to go and kind of activate in real life. I, I love that. Stefan has been fascinating to watch. Definitely walk my shoes every day because like, <laughs> uh, you know, it's a great game. I think what's interesting beyond just a, a few projects is what's happening more broadly in the space. Like there's platform products that are coming around and making access into the NFT space a lot easier. I think one that has over the past few weeks really captured my attention is Prism. Their tagline is turn your group chat into a DAO to collect NFTs as a team. And I love that, right? It, it It's like fractionalized trading in, in a more traditional market. A lot of people are priced out of buying Google shares, or at least they were at one point. And being able to buy a fraction of a Bitcoin or a fraction of a share has been like very powerful in bringing more people in at smaller price points. I think doing that with NFTs as well is going to be really interesting. And then custody, you know, 
NFTs right now are all driven by self-custody, which is, as you said, a nightmare. Um, I remember the first time that I set up my MetaMask, it was like, okay, a browser extension as a financial tool. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. And it's a fox. (laughs) Like, trust the fox browser extension. This is fine. Thousands of dollars can be there and it's totally safe. I, I think that kind of reinventing and and pushing on the world of self-custody is also going to be really critical in the space. Mm -hmm. Rainbow is a product that I love that, you know, does it well and is super delightful. When I onboard new people into, you know, self-custody, that's usually when I'm showing them. Christine, tell us about Rainbow for those who don't know about it. Yeah. So Rainbow is a wallet. It is mobile-based, so it is on your phone. And it just has a very beautiful UI. Um, If either of you guys are floor users, you'll know that UI and user experience is like, I think central to helping people navigate the space. You know, the early issues that I had with getting involved in, in, you know, Bitcoin or crypto was that, hey, it was super technical. It was for engineers by engineers. I think that there are products that are changing that and making it feel like a familiar experience that kind of creates delight and makes the use cases that you are trying to accomplish really straightforward and really easy. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, that's on my to-do list to try as Rainbow. I've heard about it for a couple of years. But uh, MetaMask, I think, is a pioneer, and I've got a huge respect for what they built. But it's really hard 100%. to love that product. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the space wouldn't be where it is today without MetaMask and like what they've done there. But it's really hard. It's it's hard. I I I when I went to make my first NFT purchase, like at the time, was running a crypto business, you know, at a near public company, and I have a master's in computer science and I found it challenging, right? And like those two things should make it that really easy. Like I should be the person that can figure this out and it's not intimidating and it's not scary. If it's hard for me, like God forbid we try to onboard someone, you know, like my parents, it'll just be impossible. That's always the example I use. And we talk all the time with guests about, you know, the problems with the UX onboarding in crypto and everything just needs to get a little bit easier to use. But of course, it's early days. It's early days. There's something, Christine, I want to make sure I ask about. I ask almost all our guests, but of course, Mm -hmm. you're especially well-suited because you're going all in on NFTs. What do you make of NFT haters? And I don't just mean the people who, you know, think it's stupid. There's a lot of those Mm -hmm. who just think, you know, they kind of just can't get there, especially when it's digital only. And they they look at something like a board ape and they say, how can that be worth $500,000? Fine. Yeah. But but there's even sort of one level beyond where it's there's real vitriol and there's people who just say this entire space is a scam and a fraud and it's all, you know, a money grab. And occasionally there are moments in the NFT world that really, you know, make it hard to refute those people, you know, collections that soar and then they tank two days right. later. 
What do you make of of the vitriol there? And what do you say to people who dismiss NFTs? Yeah. So I think I've had a little bit of experience dealing with haters given some of my prior roles and resume. But you know, I actually I, I tie this back. I get this question a lot, or I got it when it came to Dogecoin, right? Because Dogecoin had a moment last year on Robinhood's platform, and a lot of people were like, eh, this is a meme coin. Like, why? Why support it? Why trade it? This is a bad thing for crypto overall. And I actually think it got a bad rap and in a lot of ways does not get the credit it deserves to helping onboard people into the space. Crypto has three problems with accessibility, economic problems, emotional problems, and educational problems, right? Economic is, hey, there is a certain barrier to entry, like you have to be able to pay this price tag to get in the door. You know, there are ways to solve that. Educational is just like, how do you set up your own wallet? What are the steps that need to be taken? Some of this is going to be informational. Some of this is going to be baked into products that that evolve in the space over time where you actually lower the barrier of entry from an educational perspective because it's kind of handled from a product perspective. The big one is the emotional barrier of, you know, is this space for me? Am I suited to actually do this? And, you know, Dogecoin at the time, it made it really easy for people to be like, yeah, this is for me. You know, it's a coin with a dog on it and I can start with a dollar and I can just try it out and see what happens and dip my toe in and go from there. And I think in a lot of ways, NFTs are that, but on a much grander, bigger scheme, because it does have more use cases beyond just financial speculation, right? Like there's membership, there's utility, there's activity, right? And so for the the folks who are skeptics, who are, you know, shaking their fist at the space and saying there are scams and, you know, it's not safe, you know, I would say like, yes, that's probably true for most spaces that you look closely at. There will always be people that will try to take advantage of a nascent and burgeoning technology. But if you think that this is just JPEGs for rich people right now, like, can actually probably look a little bit closer. JPEGs for rich people is just like the onboarding. This is just like the first step. There's a lot more that will, that if you go one layer deeper and the potential of what can be built on top of this is so much greater than like what exists today. I don't think most of those people, you know, you're talking about like the vitriol, the like the big skeptics. Like, honestly, I, I, I think most of those folks aren't up for a rational conversation. So tend to not try to push too hard there. I think if they come back in five years, what will be interesting is that they will likely own and use NFTs in their daily life and maybe not even realize it. Yeah, that's well put, Christine, and slightly older. And I remember the early days of the internet, like what they called it the World Wide Web, the information superhighway at the time. And a lot of people didn't understand it. And, you know, people are contemptuous and afraid of things they don't understand. So for years, there's this sort of genre of media writing of like how the Internet's a scam and it was or the moral panics. It was for like only for child molesters and criminals. That's what people said about the Web. You know, so it sort of feels like a replay 20 years later. But what I would like to ask is drilling down on the use of NFTs. I've said this parable before, but, you know, a lot of you are probably familiar with it. The parable about the three blind scientists and the elephant. And one guy's touching the tail, one guy's touching the tusk, and one guy's touching the trunk. And they have to guess what it is, but they can't put it together. And that's how I certainly feel about NFTs. But it's emerging quickly. So tell us the most promising 
use cases you see? I mean, I personally think board apes are stupid, but I'm really excited about in the music industry, you know, artists like the chain smokers giving NFTs to their fans that will give not just membership privileges, but royalties. So for me, music is the most compelling case, but give me a couple other ones. I mean, music is also one that resonates pretty deeply with me. I think that is one of the clearest and most simple, straightforward. Like you can take an industry that exists today you can adjust it ever so slightly and there are net benefits for the artist, right? I think that that is, you know, it's really easy for people to grok that one because it looks a lot like what it would look like in what what we call, and I'm doing my little finger quotes, web two. I think that, and I, and I mentioned this before, membership and utility, I think is a great kind of emerging use case as well. I think it's not fully baked out in all situations yet. Like I mentioned, links as a great example of, hey, you have a token that literally gets you access to a golf course that you you can go and play at or a kind of global pass to multiple golf courses. I think that that is something that we'll see kind of proliferate beyond just, you know, in-person kind of events or activities. I actually think Floor, to my understanding, was the first token-gated app where to get access to the app, you minted a Floor token, and that gave you like this preview into a world of your NFTs that made it more understandable, more accessible, you know, in being able to pull out insights, being able to work with the community and and kind of understand what a broader group of people are are doing. I think we'll see more companies lean into that as well as a as a way for NFTs to kind of give you access to the uti- a specific in-world utility, you know, whether that's a digital world like a metaverse or a physical world like, you know, where you and I are sitting today. I think that's what I'm personally excited about. Christine, let's talk a little bit about competition. You know, what you guys mm. are doing at Floor is really interesting. And certainly, though, you're not the only recently launched NFT platform. And there yeah. are the existing marketplaces that everyone knows that sort of characterized arguably the the first NFT boom, right? Earlier right. in the pandemic. I mean, there's there's OpenSea, there's Zora, there's Foundation, there's Nifty Gateway, all these different options. And then now there's some newer ones and even some others for tracking your NFTs. You know, Mark Cuban backed one of them. I think it's just called Nifty. I mean, there's mm. so many things that are start with Nifty. But yeah. you, you, you look around the landscape, I mean, is that going to be tough to to carve out, you know, here's what, which one you guys should use and and what's the plan in terms of branding? You know, how, how are you going to be framing the appeal and allure of floor over other NFT tracking homes? Yeah. So I'll kind of start with what it means that there's kind of proliferation in the space. You know, what I'm seeing is that there's actually a lot of fragmentation. Marketplaces are becoming more fragmented. Chains create fragmentation, right? So is this Ethereum, is it Solana, is it Flow, et cetera? Even use cases create fragmentation, right? When I have a, a play to earn or staked assets, right? Those are kind of quote unquote living somewhere else versus PFPs. There's a totally different use case that I have for those versus utility tokens. I want to, you know, I don't want to know the rarity of certain asset or uh, properties of that because they're all the same versus one of one art, which, you know, serves a, a, a totally different human need as well. All of these use cases, chains, marketplaces, creating fragmentation make it harder for users today to understand their NFTs. 
And actually, I think that's where Floor has this like piece of magic, which is it's a single view across all of that. And that's critical for larger audiences, finding it intuitive and accessible. So actually, when, when people say, hey, there's a lot going on in the space, does that mean that there's this tiny piece of pie that's getting whittled further and further down? And I say like, no, actually, as the pie gets cut up, like understanding which piece of the pie of that is yours and how you want to engage with it and what where its home is, I think is the opportunity that Floor is leaning into that we're, you know, we didn't see served in, in this space so far. Mm. In terms of branding, I mean, I'm going <laughs> to, we, uh, this week is consensus and there is a bright pink truck that is driving around, I think as we speak Friday, um, I, I love Floor's brand. I think the one of the things that Chris and our amazing early designer Patrick leaned into was that this needs to be a brand that is accessible and approachable to everyone. We are looking at the next million to 10 million to 100 million users coming into the NFT space and saying like what's going to resonate with them and how are they going to feel like there's trust, safety, like the ability to show up and, you know, not get rugged. And that is one of the things that is most important right now. Um, the way even like we we speak about NFTs, I, I think that this speculative culture is super fun. Watching Goblin Town is super fun. Like I, I love the the meme side of the industry, but like it has to be more than that. And there has to be like an air of playfulness, but the ability to say, like, and we see so, so much more as well. Christine, real quickly, I got to ask about this pink truck. Is it just, is it just driving around Austin or is it giving away like lollipops or weed candy or what's this truck doing? <laughs> it's probably nothing, but it, it has a QR code on it. So you should, you should find the truck, you should scan it and, and see what's on the other side of that. Nice. Uh, well, we talked for a second about competition in the NFT business space, and I know it's, you know, more fun to look forward than backward. But having left Robinhood, I wanted to make sure we also ask you about, you know, the increasingly fierce competition between exchanges and also fintech apps. I mean, you know, it, it, for a while it was Coinbase and FTX, but then, you know, Robinhood's in there. PayPal has launched a number of crypto buying features and Jeff has written about that. The company formerly known as Square, now Block, you know, all of these companies that previously did a couple things are now trying to kind of do it all. And they're all edging into each other's territory. Now from your perch post Robinhood, what do you make of, of that space and, and the, uh, the centralized exchange race? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I think that where there's so much value to having multiple players in the space is it brings more people on, um, uh, I think if you are the loan exchange, um, there's a, a question of like legitimacy and trust and, hey, is a regulator going to swoop in and shut all this down one day? Um, that makes it hard as a retail investor to kind of like jump in with both feet. I think as there is, you know, more competition, you know, more standards, like I think actually in, in some cases and this is a, a great example, like more industry participation with one another. So I know earlier this year, there's like now a standard for transfer information sharing to meet regulatory requirements that, you know, Coinbase and Robinhood and all the other exchanges kind of worked on together. I think that that is a, a net positive for the average retail customer who's already in the space and for those who want to get involved. And for me, the more people involved in crypto, the better. I think it starts with 
you know, you have to acquire the asset, which requires, you know, fiat onboarding in some way, some sort of trade in some way, and then, you know, moving that to a wallet if you want to kind of self-custody and kind of fall down the rabbit hole into Web3. And so as that funnel, that top of funnel increases, I you know, I think that's good for the ecosystem. Christine, before we wrap, we have to, uh, we'll be done in a second, but I want to ask you about another big platform, namely OpenSea. And what I've been wondering, watching it from a distance is, you know, no matter what happens, they seem to retain 90% of the market share. I wonder if that's just one of these, you know, industries where first mover advantage is all that matters and whether it, you know, like OpenSea, you know, it seems like a disaster. There's hacks there. One of their executives just got arrested by the Justice Department for insider trading, you know, and yet it seems dominant. There used to seem to be like, you know, and, you know, it seemed to be a jump ball between like nine of these platforms a year ago and now they've run away with it, with it. Can anyone catch it, you know, or is OpenSea locked this up? No, I, I definitely think that there we're so early. There's still opportunity to innovate here and and like be real fierce competition. There are two things in the in the kind of NFT space that I think if someone gets right, will from a marketplace perspective, will challenge OpenSea. The first is custody. You know, self-custody is very hard. I think it's the hardest part of the entire NFT acquisition process. And, you know, OpenSea is fully leaned into like, okay, you are self-custodying. I think if a, if a marketplace could do that well and, and kind of have more institutional custody, that would bring on a new wave of investors that are sitting on the sidelines right now. I think the second thing is the fiat on-ramp. So being able to go from dollars or whatever you hold in, in your from your day job to you know what you need to actually transact on chain. Again, like OpenSea does not provide that on-ramp. You are acquiring, you know, crypto somewhere else and using your own wallet to to make transactions. I think that the there's a set of kind of investors, retail participants, users, that barrier to entry is keeping them out and having both the rails to get involved as well as the security to keep your assets somewhere will help them kind of get over the the, the ledge and, and really start participating in the ecosystem. And just to end very quickly, Christine, just in, you know, three words, your favorite NFT collection ever. Favorite NFT collection ever. It's got to be the floor Gen 1, 2, and 3 tokens for sure. <laughs> Ooh, give us another one. What's second Um, favorite? Okay, so if you barred me from choosing floor tokens, which, you know, I I love, absolutely adore. There's so much utility they've brought into my life. I'm a big fan of doodles right now. Deadfellas also is something that I, like, just absolutely adore the art and what they're doing. And Moonbirds, I think Proof is an interesting community concept and... I love I love me the burbs. So those are three kind of in the PFP space. If you're gonna if you're gonna bar me from utility tokens like floor, it's fine. It's fine. Nice, cool. Back to the PFPs. I like it. Well, Christine, yeah. uh, thank you so much. We'll keep in close touch and we'll be watching the growth at floor. Thanks for coming on GM. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. This has been GM from Decrypt. I'm Dan Roberts. And I'm Jeff Roberts. GM is a Decrypt podcast produced by Red Rock Music. Our executive producer is Red Yoakum. Our associate producer is Emma Martins. And our audio engineer is Enrique Inahosa. For more from Decrypt, go to decrypt.co or download our mobile app. Subscribe and review us wherever you listen, and we'll meet you back here next time for more crypto conversation. GM. GM.